Hey, this is Liv Warfield, and you're listening to the Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. The telephone is ringing. You got me on the run. I'm driving in my car now, diggers. Anticipating fun, and I hope you are as well. Welcome to October. Uh, It's fall, and there is a chill in the air here at Pantheon HQ in San Francisco. Not a lot in the business department this week. Uh, We'll be quick. Uh, Let me just highlight another show in the Pantheon network. Let It Roll is hosted by Nate Wilcox, and it is a series of in-depth interviews with music writers like Ed Ward, Robert Gordon, Paul Trinka, Robert Criscow, Peter Doggett, uh, Elijah Wald, and more. Uh, oh, that's funny. Paul Trinka shows up in episode 18. Ho, ho. Uh-huh. Okay. Nate is slowly but surely putting together a history of popular music in America with a focus on the social, technological, and business forces that drive the culture. Wow, Nate, you fit in really nice around here. The first season of the show is a series of in-depth interviews with Ed Ward about his book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963. Ward was the official rock and roll historian for NPR's Fresh Air for 30 years and is a former editor of Rolling Stone, a writer for Crawdaddy and Cream. Nate now has five seasons under his belt and a sixth one on the way. If you enjoy what I do here with Deeper Digs, I'm sure you will dig Nate's take with his guests. Join Nate Wilcox and all the show Let It Roll has to offer on Pantheon Podcasts or wherever you find great podcasts. All right. Uh, And those of you who are inquiring about episode 18 of the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast, (laughs) yes, we are still working on it diligently, but it shouldn't be too much longer now. A few more weeks before we release it. Expect episode 18, 1969, part one very shortly. No new Patreon patrons to speak of this week or to shout out to, but if you are interested, please head over to patreon.com backslash rock and roll podcast, or you can find it on our website, pantheonpodcasts.com and click on the support button at the top of the page. If you don't want to become a full-on patron at Patreon, um, consider some merch at TeePublic. I'm seeing a lot of new folks with swag on our social media. Uh, It's almost gift-giving time, uh, something in there that a loved one might want. Uh, You know, who knows? Check it out. Okay, that's all the biz for this week. Let's get to our own guest. We're caught in a trap. I can't walk out Because I love you too much, baby Why can't you see What you're doing to me When you don't believe 
today. Diggers, we are going podcast to podcast. Mano, Imano, rock and roll versus rock and rolla. First, I gotta say, I hate Jake Brennan and his fantastic rock and rollers go bad podcast disgraceland. Why? Uh, professional jealousy, of course. It's a really good show, and it's highly successful. So much so, it's one of the top podcasts in the world. And I am really excited about that. A rock and roll podcast ruling the podcast world is awesome to all of us. It's proof our love of music is, in fact, a very interesting subject matter for podcasting. Of course, Disgraceland is more than just a music podcast. It's actually sitting right nicely into another podcast subject matter, and that is true crime. In other words, <laughs> Jake is in the zeitgeist by taking the known hit maker of true crime and coupling it with an up-and-coming music discussion uh, podcast, uh, true crime rock and roll. Uh, it's like chocolate and peanut butter. They go together perfectly. Now, Jake is a, is a real musician who has been working the Northeast for decades, having been born and bred in the Boston area. Yes, he was signed to a record deal back in the old glory days with his band Cast Iron Hike, and he is a bit of a rock and roll archaeologist himself. Like all of us diggers, he immersed himself in whatever he could find to learn more about his rock and roll heroes back in the day. Apparently, he gravitated towards the uh, horror-esque corners of the rock and roll world. In 2018, he decided to take all those stories that he'd been telling his friends forever and create a gruesome retelling and called it Disgraced Land. Uh, well, guess what? It was an instant hit. So much so that there is now a book out that takes some of these stories on the podcast as well as some not a part of the show and then weave them together into a potpourri of murder, mayhem, drugs, guns, and debauchery. It's a fun read. Perfect for this Halloween season. Okay, let's get to it. Diggers, dig it up. Give it up. Dig it up. For Jake Brennan. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So 
What are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Jake Brennan. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's our pleasure. Really, really glad that we could spend the time together. All right, first question. It just has to be, which of the deadly rock and rollers would you be willing to share a uh, liver dish and Chianti with? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I think um, I think Big Lurch, because that would be uh, he's the only one who's actually cannibalized somebody. Oh, you, you, you require somebody with experience. Yes. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and I'm know my way around the Chianti and the fava beans and the, what right. are they called? Sweetbreads. Is that what yes. they're called? Sweetbreads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, <clears throat> so you, uh, well, geez, would you engage, uh, in it or would you just kind of politely decline the, the meal and, and enjoy the conversation? No, you know, man, I draw the line of cannibalism. I mean, I eat a lot of stuff, but eating people is not not my bag. <laughs> good, good, good to know. Good to know. Okay, so now, uh, uh, if Big Lurch uh, is, uh, you know, somebody that that you would sit down with, who who would you avoid at all costs? Well, it's probably the same answer. <laughs> I was kidding about sitting down with Big Lurch. Yeah. Um, I mean, Spade Cooley was particularly nasty. Um, I don't know that I'd like to hang out with that guy. Um, but well, what about Gigi uh, Allen? He's a nutball too. Yeah, they're both dead in the grave. <laughs> um, yeah, Gigi's particularly disgusting. Yeah, I wouldn't hear that guy with a ten foot pole. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I didn't know much about him until uh, your episode, and then I was like, really. Somebody like that actually exists. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. man, that's that's rough. That's rough. Really? Right. Okay. Okay. We'll get back to the book in in a minute, uh, and we'll dive deeper into that. But let's let's focus on the music here for a second. 
um, uh, we we as we dig into uh, uh, the show, one one of the coolest parts of Disgraceland is the original music in the show. Um, I really dig it, and so let's talk about your original vocation as a musician. Um, you know, you you started off as that was your your career, right? It was, yeah. I was in the. Um, I started out in the punk and hardcore scene when I was a kid, and you know, we, my band, Cast Iron Hike, had a record on Victory Records when we, when I was really young. I was like nineteen, twenty years old when that that started. Um, so pretty much right on. I mean, right from the jump, I was making records with like real independent labels and touring with real hardcore bands, bands like. We did a tour with Sick of It All, which blew my mind. They're one of my favorite bands of all time at that point. We wow, play, yeah. play with a bunch of like our heroes um, from the hardcore scene. And there was a real sort of DIY um, ethic to that whole world that I've carried into everything I've done ever since. Oh, it's um, been the beginning since the, the you know punk came on the scene in the, uh, the uh, mid-70s. Exactly, exactly. And so from there, I just kind of was always just making records. And I was able to kind of piece together um a living for myself you know marginally it wasn't a great living but you know it was a diy living and it was perfect for me at the time and when i um so i said made records for yep rock and there was like americana stuff i was doing then i was in a band called bodega girls after that which i was trying to really kind of mix like you know stones disco stuff with like modern electronic dance music uh, that oh, band was cool. a lot of fun. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, and from there, I ended up, you know, vocationally speaking, I was I was working at an ad agency as a creative director focused solely on music. And that world, the world of advertising, wasn't really for me. I was there for about 12, 18 months, actually. And um, from there, I left to just focus on music and audio. And that's where the podcast was born. Yeah. So now, now was was music uh, around the house uh, as you were growing up? Um, not so much around the house. My parents were split up, and my dad's a musician. He's he's been a professional musician his whole life. My whole life. Ah, his apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. Um, so, well, vocationally speaking, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had uh, I had access to. Uh, his records, which is an amazing record collection. And, you know, whenever I got into something, like if I got into like the Red Hot Chili Peppers or Nirvana or Beastie Boys or whatever it was, there was always like, well, if you're into the Beastie Boys, you got to check out the meters and I could get that record from my dad's house. If you're into the Chili Peppers, you got to check out George Clinton and they'd have, he'd have those records. So it was, it was sort of an entry into this tons of music and sort of, um, you know, uh, just look into the roots of music that I wouldn't have had had I not had, you know, my father in my life. Yeah. So, uh, what were your original influences? I mean, what did, what did you gravitate to? Uh, you know, when 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 you got in deep into that record collection. I mean, from an early age, I was obsessed with rock and roll. You know, when I was a you know tiny little kid, five years old, I was obsessed with Elvis and oldies, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, all that uh, stuff. The originals, right? The, the original. I mean, that's that's really kind of like you know commanding stuff for a five year old. You know, it's really easy to latch on to. And then as I got a little bit older, my taste obviously advanced a little. I was in like sixth grade or whatever, and I was obsessed with Angus Young and Bon Scott, all that great ACDC stuff from the seventies. Yeah, of course, yeah, can't the go 80s. wrong there. Yeah. 
And that kind of morphed into, like I said before, Sick of It All and kind of all the New York hardcore bands, the Boston hardcore bands. And at that point, when I was like 15 years old, I was old enough to start going to hardcore matinees in Boston and really like seeing bands like Slapshot, Youth of Today. And and then a couple of years after that, I'm in a band that's sort of playing with people who are in those bands. So it was, it was kind of, that was the trajectory, but I've always because of the influence my old man had on me, I've always sort of had really eclectic musical tastes and have been into kind of everything um, related to rock and roll, you know, and the stuff that came before it, blues and country and soul and R&B, all that stuff. I would assume your dad took you to your first rock and roll shows, right? In fact, they probably you went and saw him play with the, some of those rock and roll shows. I did, yeah. He um, When I was 10 years old, I think, I think I was 10. I was really young. It was um, his band opened up for the Ramones. And wow, he took, that yeah. big time. It was tremendous. And I remember, you know, I didn't know who the Ramones were at that point, but I remember. Well, him neither as- did anybody else back then. Uh, a lot of people like to make up that the Ramones are like this huge band. And they, they didn't make a dime when they were around. It wasn't until sure. after they were all dead. Yeah, it's true. I wonder where that money's going now, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, <laughs> hey, there, there, there's a, there sounds like a Disgrace Land episode right there. <laughs> I hope it's going to their families. Um, but yeah, it was um, – I remember my dad stressing the importance of the Ramones to me, you know, and the way he explained it was – I must have been into the Beach Boys or something at the time because he explained it as they're like the Beach Boys, but just really loud and really fast. <laughs> and he was right. That's a great way of describing them to a 10-year-old. But that show was definitely formative. And you know, I don't know that I met them, but I was definitely backstage close to them. And they just looked like these tall, alien-looking, crazy guys. Yeah, well, they're straight out of a fucking comic book. So Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was obsessed. And, you know, and I went home and I told all the, you know, punk rockers in my neighborhood that I saw the Ramones. And, of course, they didn't believe me. So they kicked my ass up and down the <laughs> line to them. <laughs> uh, little did they know that I was actually telling Ooh, the truth. The, the mean streets of Boston. Yeah, well, suburban boss, not even central Massachusetts. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. The mean streets of central Massachusetts, right. Okay, so you're, you're, you're making a living uh, as a musician, uh, mostly around the, the, the Northeast and Boston area, uh, trying to get the music to pay. pay. So how, how did you decide to make a podcast, uh, and how did the end result become Disgraceland? Or, or was that the original idea? Um, I ended up, you know, you know, after being in that hardcore band, I, I was in bands throughout my, my twenties and toured a bunch, toured Europe, all this stuff. And then when the music industry kind of really uh, imp- yeah. imploded, um, kind of like 2007, Three, two thousand, oh, that, that late, okay. even later. Yeah. I mean, I, I was signed still until like 2007, but by, so like by 2008, we're all looking at each other going like, well, you know, we're in these bands and we want to put on the show, we want to make this video, you know, where are we going to get the money to do it because the record labels aren't investing in anything. And I just happened to be of the age where some of my friends were at this point working for other brands or ad agencies and they became an outlet for resources to actually go and get music projects done. So I did a bunch of that. And oh, commercials my, and things like that. It started out just like – 
putting on show, but big shows. Like, you know, I did like Wiz Khalifa with like 50,000 people on Boston City Hall Plaza and got brands to help pay for it. You know what I mean? Like that oh, type okay. of stuff. Uh-huh. And then I, you do enough of that and sooner or later – they're like, hey, can you, you're a musician. Can you do a track for this TV commercial? And then that turned into a thing. And then that turned into me working as a creative director for about a year and a half at an ad agency just focused on music. And I knew it. I, it just wasn't for me. And by that point, that was like 2015, I knew I, get, I, was, I was getting into podcasts. I was like, I'm going to leave this job and I'm going to figure out I'm going to make a podcast and that'll lead to something else. That'll lead to my next thing. I didn't think it would lead to Dude. being a podcast, <laughs> yeah, right, and right. Lead to a book and tours uh, and all that other stuff. It became its own thing. Um, but I knew, uh, so I didn't know what I was going to do the podcast on. And then I just, I wanted to do something on music, but there were so many hurdles. It was like, you can't use music to license it. You know, if, I didn't want to interview people because, I don't want to be on that side of the sort of creative equation. I want to be a creator, not a comment, not a, not someone who's commenting. Uh-huh. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just not, you know, I, I look at myself as I want to make shit, not talk about people making shit mm-hmm. or two people making shit. Um, so I was really like, what the hell, how, how am I going to do this? Um, but once I figured out that I wanted to mix it with music, with true crime, I was like, I can just tell these stories that I've been telling to my friends for years and annoying the shit out of with, <laughs> and that'll be it. I'll just do it. I'll make the music myself because, you know, doing it with other people is a pain in the ass. And, you know, now I do do it with other people. Obviously there's, there's friends who help me with the music cause I need it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the beginning it was a one, as much of a one man show as I could make it so that I didn't have to rely on anyone else and rely on schedules and, and once I started floating the idea out there to, to friends, hey, I'm doing this thing, it's a, it's a mixture of true crime and music, the reaction I, I was getting was like incredibly positive and exciting. And I kind of thought this might actually be something more than I think it yeah, – than I thought it was going to be. Oh, even then, before the launch? Yeah, yeah, okay. even before the launch. I mean I had I had people interested um, from networks to put it out. Um, and I, I didn't go with a network, um, you know, just based on the strength of the idea, I didn't go with a network, but I did partner with a, I did, I did partner with a sales partner. Um, so when I did launch, they were, they were selling it immediately and that had sort of its own built in promotion. Um, and that, that little tiny built in promotion that I had at the beginning of the first episode, um, it really kind of brought it to people's attention and then just organically, it just kind of just grew immediately, like from the, from the jump, it was just like, Whoa, this is insane. I remember talking to my wife. I'm like, I can't, uh, I can't keep up with the social commentary that's going on. And I'm afraid that if I stop responding to people, you're going to alienate people. This this is all gonna go away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I need to press the flesh with every single person. Yes, yeah, <laughs> I lasted about three days. Uh. Yeah, it, then it becomes unmanageable, and uh, that yeah. you would that we would be doing that and nothing else. 
Yeah. Uh, so yeah, you can't do that. So, so okay. So uh, uh, you 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 decide that uh, uh, true crime uh, and music, which hadn't been done before, uh, was was well, it was perfect in the zeitgeist as, as well. I mean, let's face it. The you know the true crime uh, 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 subgenre in podcasting is absolutely huge. So you know you couldn't go wrong uh, with that. Um, but yeah, I, I can imagine it must have been challenging because you know you're. Your, your first issue is that you, uh, you you felt like you were unable to use the music of the the uh, the people that you were talking about, uh, and you had to create your own. Um, so so how did you do that? Because it it, it it ended up working anyway. Well, you know, it's funny. I mentioned the reaction I was getting from friends about the concept. The reaction I was getting from everybody in the music industry who I'm friends with or who people had connected with me with or people in the podcast industry was this is never going to work. Good luck. You know, it was, and I just, I knew it could work because I knew even though it was a music podcast, it was more a true crime podcast. Like, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's a true crime podcast disguised as a music podcast. But even if you blends out a little bit more than that, it's neither of those things. It's a storytelling yeah, podcast. It's, yeah, it's just stories. And, yeah, yeah. And I knew if the stories were great, none of the other shit would really matter. I, now, certainly the popularity of an artist matters in getting people's attention. But if the story sucks, you know, nobody's going nobody's gonna to stick around. They're not going to download the next episode. You know what I mean? They're not going to come back. And so from that standpoint, I was like the music, the background music – the music of the artists, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter to me at all. I cannot stand when I'm watching a television show, a documentary or a film about a musician and it's clear that they couldn't get the rights to something and they're doing some like cheesy oh, version of it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. my thing was I'll just fuck with that. I'll go full cheese. I'll use this cheesy <laughs> type of sound effect. And I will and like, point it out at, at each episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Because I couldn't do this. Fuck you. I'm going right. to give you the worst cheesy shit that uh, is is imaginable. <laughs> right, right. And I and I don't want to actually when I'm talking about Jerry Lee Lewis or the Rolling Stones, I don't want to be like trying to do Jerry Lee Lewis or the Rolling Stones musically in the background. Yeah. I want to be fucking with Jerry Lee Lewis <laughs> or the Rolling Stones. You know what I mean? I want to be like creating something out of it. I want to take a Stones riff and put it to like an electronic beat and mess with it and get weird because you can do that in podcasting. Yeah. You know, you can't do that really anywhere else. I guess you can do it in television. But, you know, so that's sort of how the whole sonic thing kind of came about. And again, it goes back to punk and hardcore and doing it yourself. DIY, right. And right. using your limitations as strengths. Yeah. If somebody's going to tell me I can't do something, I'm going to figure out a way to do it. And if someone's going to tell me like, you can't do this because whatever that reason is, that reason is still part of who I am. It's part of my essence. There's, there's a, I can make something out of that. You know what I mean? And I just believe in that to my core. And I feel like that's the success of the show right there. 
yeah, I, that's a great distillation. Uh, so let's let's talk about the creation of the individual shows. And by the way, I listened to the 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 first couple ones, but the one that, of course, that just blew my mind because I didn't know it. I, I, you know, as as our fans know, you know, I, I am called the rock and roll archaeologist, and I read uh, probably as many books as you do uh, on rock and roll, and have my whole life, and we probably have a connection in that. Um, mm-hmm. But. Um, uh, the one that I did not know was the Swedish death metal um, uh, story. Uh, no, <laughs> and when, no, when that, one, that literally just blew my mind. Yeah, I got to correct you a little bit because people get really upset about this. It's it's actually Norwegian and it's not oh, death I'm metal. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's black metal. And there is, there is a okay, distinction. Okay. Yeah. yeah I knew there is. The I, yes, I know there is. A, you're, you're right. There is a distinction. <laughs> Yeah, I knew of the story. I remember hearing about it when it actually happened because the hardcore scene I was in was, you know, very similar to that scene in a lot of ways and had, you know, shared fans. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't really know the um, the, the the story of dead Euronymous and Varg. Yeah, I didn't know, you know, it's sort of the sort of like this. It, it's in my in my book. I expand on it yeah. a lot more. Yeah, and there's. There's some deep-seated um, stuff psychologically going in, going on in the background between the three of those guys. It's oh like yeah, <laughs> really interesting. Yeah. So, how do you decide on what stories to to flesh out and reanimate in the most gruesome form imaginable? I don't know. You know, I don't really think about how what I'm going to expand, what I'm not going to tell. I don't, I'm just trying to tell. This, usually I'm trying to tell the story of the artist through the crime. You know what I mean? Like I'm trying to get to the essence of who that artist was. Maybe not completely, but at least in that moment. So then whatever, you know, if I'm looking at the Rolling Stones for that Exile on Main Street episode, you know, the Rolling Stones, there's no way you can do their story in 30 minutes. But I can tell you, I can tell you about 1970 to 1972. Yeah, in the south of France, right? Uh, right, exactly. Uh, yeah. And then it's like, well, what what are the the pieces of that crime that make sense to sort of tell that story? And there's always a central theme to every episode as well, and that really helps me decide um, what elements I want to bring to life. So uh, the the research and the writing of the script that that must take the longest, I would assume. It does. I've got it down now to, um, you know, the research, I don't know how to quantify because I'm kind of, I'm just always reading and watching and, and, but I do have a process now that is pretty ironclad. Um, and I write, I can write an episode in a week in like a, like a four day week. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's not writing eight hour days. It's like writing for like two, two to four hours a morning. Okay. All right. Uh, so, and and I'm and I'm sure, like I like I said, you've been reading these rock and roll books all your life, like like I have. Yeah, yeah. I'm not starting flat footed. No. Like I know I, I'm looking for like, you know, I'm looking for a quick refresher, and then I'm looking for like, you know, what again? What are the stories I'm gonna I'm gonna really detail, and how does that support the larger theme I'm trying to tell? Um, but yeah, I couldn't do this in any other subject the way that I'm doing it now. Yeah, just, I, it's right what you know, and this is what you know, right? right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So you, you do break it up into seasons. Um, did you plan that uh, from the very beginning, or is it just kind of how it worked out? I did plan it from the beginning, yeah. I did. I um, I knew I wanted to – it was basically just like production-wise. 
and promotion and setting things up. And there's like, you know, now, I mean, God, now that I'm with iHeart, there's like, you know, you spend a month setting up the promotion like you would a record back in the day yeah. uh, before it even goes live. And it really helps me if I do it seasonally, it also helps me sort of from a programming standpoint, like I can figure out, okay, you know, because I have like, you know, 200 of these, you know, written down in a document of what I'm going to do eventually, but I want there to be a good mix. I want there to be like artists that kind of can hang well together in like a three week period and kind of bring you through, even though it's an anthology series, you can feel like with the themes there is that some are connective together. tissue. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So now you said at the, at the beginning, you know, you, you wanted to try to do this all on your own. Uh, and it kind of began to expand. So, uh, how, is there a much bigger team now? Yeah, there is. It's, it's, I've shrunk, I've shrunk, shrank. I don't know what the word is. <laughs> I've uh, contracted it there you go. <laughs> uh, a little bit over the last month or so. Um, I started to build it slow, and then I kind of like, I, you know, when I took on the book, I knew I had, I needed some help with the podcast. So basically, where it's at now, I have, um, I have my hands in everything. I write everything. I do have a, I have two other writers who work with me on everything, on every episode. One who's like a writing assistant, and then another who's an actual editor. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a sound engineer who engineers everything for me, mixes every episode now, and is also um, has begun scoring episodes on his own over the last couple weeks or with me, a couple months scoring with me. And then I have a musician that I work with who's out in LA, who's an old friend from Boston. And he, he and I collaborate, but he really drives at this point the, um, we do like an original song for every episode. And then I take those files and I use those those files to score the, the piece with the incidental music. All right. So is the, is the upcoming season, even bigger than what's come before? I think production-wise, I'm taking creative risks that I didn't take before because I'm trying to keep myself interested here uh-huh. as well. I'm not just okay. trying to like pump up volume for the sake of volume. So, um, yeah, I mean, I feel I've played the first two episodes. The first two episodes that are dropping this week, episodes one and two, um, those are both on NWA. And I definitely um, – I took some creative um, jumps, I feel like, or I tried to anyways. So, I mean, for the other ones, I don't know. I'm kind of halfway through writing them, and I never know. I'm a bad judge, man. I have no idea. <laughs> I just know I'm trying to get better at it, and there's a long way that I can go to get there. Yeah, well, that's what's important. I, You know, that, that is what keeps you engaged uh, as a creative person is that you're you're constantly trying to figure out a way to make your art uh, uh, better in, even in increments, right? Yes, 100%. Yeah. So, all right. So you get into season three, and now you begin doing live events. So how'd that come about? Um, I started getting asked to do live events pretty quickly you know a lot of podcasters do them yeah. and i got this insane offer to do a tour in australia and i was like well i don't want to just go to australia you know what i mean that's like that's a lot to just do with that. <laughs> I, 
test Long it out. Long way to go. <laughs> right. Yeah, I wanted to test it out and just see what I liked and didn't like about it and, and frankly how to even do it. I mean, it's not it's not a typical live podcast experience. There's a heavy audio and visual element to it that is very much um, part of the storytelling. It's a super immersive experience. I did uh, four shows this year and they all went great. They were all sold out or nearly sold out. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's a, t it, to me, it was a test. It's like, okay, is this, if I'm going to do this, how do I do it? And then do I even like doing it? And how much time do I want to put into doing it if I do like it? Um, so I did those. Um, I'll probably do some more next year. I'm not sure what. And I am doing a book tour in a couple weeks, and that'll be a, diff a little bit different. That'll be, um, you know, typical. I'll be joined by other writers and authors and podcasters, except for the first one I'm partnering with a musician, and he is uh, Adam Weiner from Loka County. He's live scoring oh, okay. my, my reading. So he'll be playing piano while I'm actually reading from the book, which oh, I'm nice. pretty <laughs> yeah. That sounds interesting. Cool. Are you coming out to the West Coast? Uh, yeah, I'm doing a book event in Los Angeles with um, Karen and Georgia from My Favorite Murder. They've agreed to come down and talk to me about my book and we'll talk to them about their book. And then doing um, doing another one in San Francisco with Dennis McNally, who wrote The Long Straight <laughs> Trip. I know Dennis well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's great. And then uh, – I'm doing – where else am I doing on the West Coast? Portland, Oregon. Okay. All right. Well, and what, do you have dates on those now? I do, yeah. Uh, 22nd in L.A., 23rd in Oregon – I'm sorry, 23rd in San Francisco, uh, I think 24th in Oregon. There's a Denver one as well at the beginning of that. And that's all October. It's all October. All the dates are on my uh, website, and there's you know there's East Coast dates up there as well. We'll make sure we give uh, the diggers all the info here uh, on the out on the outro of the episode here. Okay, yeah. so let's get into the book. So you you did you search out a publisher or did they come to you? I, and I ask this because all the podcasters want to know. Um, they came to me. I had an offer immediately from one of the bigger book publishers. Um, like within, like in the first season. Yeah, like oh, episode my. two. Oh uh, Jesus! Okay, and. Uh, I didn't end up going. By that point, I was like, "Whoa, okay. Well, maybe I gotta get. Maybe I gotta look at this a little serious, more seriously." And um, I, I took a beat. I met with a bunch of different publishers and editors, and then made a decision to go with Grand Central because I really vibed with the editor over there, Maddie Caldwell, who's been great. Um, she totally got the vision for the book. She had a lot that she added as well. I mean, it's not. It's an anthology series like the podcast is so it's 11 stories but there's much more connective tissue a through line between every one of these anthology series and every chapter picks up where the other one lets off so i can go from jerry lee lewis to norwegian black metal to graham parsons to axel rose to chuck berry pretty easily um and it all kind of flows together yeah, not not an easy thing to do. Uh, just uh, just saying, uh, you know, maybe Elvis to uh, to Jerry Lee, but uh, Jerry Lee to uh, Norwegian black metal—that's a stretch. 
Well, not really. You'll when you read the book, <laughs> look at it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, and by the way, your, your writing skills are, are as good as your podcasting and the musical chops, and I sincerely mean that. I wow. read a Thanks. lot of rock and roll books, uh, and I'm telling you, the the I, I might call. I might call Disgraceland a bit of a guilty pleasure, um, but your language skills really shine through. Wow. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate that. So let's get, uh, you know, we, we got a little bit of the musical influences. So what are some of your author influences? I, I, I know Stephen Davis's Hammer of the Gods is big with you. Yeah, I mean, you know, I haven't read that since I was in the sixth grade, but I did read it in the sixth grade. <laughs> <laughs> that right. says a lot right there. It blew Mud my shark mind. and everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and um, so that was a big one. But I was, I was, re- I was the type of kid who was in trouble all the time, so I was grounded all the time. And then, like, you know, if I messed up from being grounded, the first thing my mom would do would be take away my music. So I had books, and I would just read constantly and i read a lot of stephen king pretty much all of it as when i was a little kid um got into a bunch of the i mean it's not really true crime but james elroy is another big influence on me writing wise but also i mean i feel like my writing style is maybe more influenced by songwriters than authors like if I think of some more more poetry than prose, I like to think so. I mean, that's that's kind of, when I'm actually writing. That's who I'm thinking about. I mean, I'm never thinking about like James Elroy when I'm writing, or Stephen King, or Harlan Coben, or, or you know, or you know, whoever. I'm thinking about like, well, I got to say this, and I got to do it in in 25 words. So what would Hank Williams do? You know, and that's that's sort of like when I'm applying my influence to my writing that's where i'm going as a songwriter okay so taking uh, trying to take a, a story that a novelist might take uh 300 pages and trying to do it in three minutes or less exactly because i've got 30 minutes to tell you the story so i've got to really be concise and you know i mean hank williams could do in a sentence what other side other you know would take other musicians and songwriters to do with a double Three album versus yeah oh double album okay yeah 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 uh, there is that yeah so 11 stories uh, like uh, like a, a a season of disgraceland and and i believe four of them are from the the podcast episodes is that right jerry lee uh the norwegian death metal sam cook and, and lisa left eye lopes am, am i missing one or or uh, Sid Vicious as well, and then there's six brand new ones. Yeah. But the ones, the ones that are in the that are in the podcast are expanded. They're not like just yeah, yeah it's, it's not, not just straight like, uh, telling. Uh, it's not like a transcription of the of the show. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, uh, uh, the others uh, are are they are they part of an upcoming season, or were these just something that you did uh, specifically for the book? I did them specifically for the book. Um, if I do do them in a season, it won't be for a while, and I'll have to do them differently because it's a different medium. So it's you know, and again, like I said, they hang together in the book. They hang together, so it makes sense for them to be lined up like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd have to creatively figure out how to put them into a podcast. So, uh, other than Elvis, uh, and and we'll get to that a little bit deeper here in a minute. Uh, yeah. Which of the unreleased stories brought you the most nightmares? 
of the unreleased stories. Yeah, the ones that are in the book only, not in the podcast. And the ones that are in the book. Phil Spector's fucking scary, man. That <laughs> that guy, because um, he's such a chip on his shoulder, too, you know? Um, and Colonel Tom Parker, you oh. know, he's not Elvis, yeah. but another motherfucker. But, yeah. you know, I don't have nightmares about this type of stuff. I have a whole other... <laughs> A whole other psychosis bag that I get my nightmares from. It doesn't come from my work. Oh, so actually, actually, this is therapeutic. Um, yeah, in a way, definitely. I mean, yeah, if you want to get real about it, it's there's you're writing to me unexpectedly. I was never a writer growing up. Um, I wrote songs, but unexpectedly, sort of the great joy of this whole thing has been the release I get from writing and expressing myself through writing. Um, it's, you know, the book is very much me working through the grief of losing my brother and one of my best friends last year. Oh, and I'm sorry to hear that. It's very, thank you. It's very much. I mean, I started writing the book a week after I buried my brother and I started writing the chapter on Elvis, and it has very much to do with oh, the Greek. I get it now. Oh, with his yeah. brother, Skinny Elvis, right? Right. Skinny. Oh. Elvis. Yeah. So yeah. there's, it's all in there. You you know you know you're not gonna. I I didn't write it so that people would take that away from it, but you know it's it's in it helped, it fueled me, man. It really did, and and that wasn't something. Like I said, when I started this podcast and I started writing, it was just like a functional, like a functionary, like a functional thing, like a vocation. Like you said, like I just did it to be like, okay, I got to do something. This will lead to something. And what it's turned out, turned into is real creative expression for me, which was, you know, kind of, it sounds obvious, but it was kind of unexpected. That's great, man. I, I'm, I'm glad that's working for you. Um, uh, I, 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 Two lost a brother uh, about five years ago, so I I, uh, I kind of know what you're going through. So, um, uh, uh, a little side co conversation. Um, you spend yeah. a great deal of time looking back at the music industry and its damaged stars. Um, but where do you think the music is today? I think there's great music today. Uh, I don't think I'm not one of these people who thinks that music was better before than it is now. I certainly have a reverence for music that came before because that's when I came up, you know, and I, I have, it's, I'm directly connected to a lot of it that I cover, but there is incredible music being made right now that is at the absolute top of the charts. And it sounds nothing like what came before it. The problem we have is we measure it and we can't help but measure it, right? That's what we're supposed yeah. to do, pair things, but you can't compare the greatness of pick someone from my book, uh, I don't know, Sid Vicious or you know, Sid Vicious. How about, how about Graham Parsons? You, yes. You can't <laughs> compare the greatness, and greatness is not an overstatement, of Graham Parsons to the greatness of Billie Eilish. They're yeah. two totally different things. It's like, it's like comparing a microphone and a fucking telephone pole. You know, they're just, you know, they, they both happen to transmit com communication, but they are nothing alike. And I think that, to sit here and go like one one era was better than the other um, is is kind of silly. I do, however, believe 
if you told me that rock and roll was dead, I would say it is, and I could prove it for you. Yeah, because it is. It is dead. It's, yeah. it's totally uh, culturally. Dead. It's culturally. It's exactly, dead. man. That's the point. Like yeah. people, people will point. Like, and I could point to great bands. Oh, sure, all the time. Starting yeah. right now, yeah. you know, that are amazing. Yeah. But rock, a guy with a guitar yelling into a microphone is never going to have the cultural impact now that he had. 50 years ago, 30, 30 years ago. You know what I mean? And it's just not going to happen again, probably no. ever. And that's no, fine. no. As a, as a musician myself, I mean, I, I can just see it in the audience uh, when, when I was coming up and I think I'm a little bit older than you, but uh, you know, what I did was extraordinary. Uh, and I, I don't mean to say me, but me standing on a stage with a microphone in my hand out into an audience, the, the look in their eyes was wow. That's crazy. How can anybody do that? The look in their eyes today is like, oh, you know, I might be able to get up there and do that, too. Right. Right. Well, that's you know, that that I think is the 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 rub of punk rock. You know, it's kind of or, or later grunge. It leveled the playing field. It made everyone feel like they could be in a band. Yeah. And there's so many bands now. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't like that when when I remember thinking the idea when I was a kid of playing guitar and getting on a stage was like. The most daunting fucking thing ever. You know what I mean? Yeah, in now, most people's minds, they were like, "Wow, you, yeah, how do you do that?" Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but for me, I was born a natural ham, so you know, jumping on stage was not a problem. Uh, but to other people, it was, it was, you know, they, it, you know, and, and let's face it, we lived in a different world. It was, you know, our feelings were meant to be uh, kept to ourselves, uh, and that is not right. the case today. Uh, you know, right. now, now everybody is allowed to express themselves, which is a good thing. Don't get me wrong, but. What it did do is it took away those who were willing to put themselves out there as something extraordinary. It's it's just not anymore. Right. A hundred percent. Yeah. So uh, so you do believe that someone in the future, maybe yourself, will be writing stories of excess rampage and murder about today's music stars. Yeah. Hopefully it's me. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I hope so too. <laughs> already. I mean, I've got modern artists in recent episodes. I mean, I did Cardi B. Yeah. Last, yeah. I mean, they made a movie about it, you know, immediately. Um, but yeah, I mean, it goes to the central ethos of Disgraceland, which is rock stars are crazy. The thing that makes them crazy and commit crimes and behave the way they behave is the same thing that, allows them to do what they do creatively like james brown isn't james brown if he's not uh hung up in a burlap bag at the age of 11 and beaten with fucking pool cues right. and james brown yeah. and i mean that the whole james brown james brown the musician isn't james brown the musician and no. james brown the, the fucking yeah. drug smoking maniac going on a shotgun rampage in a pickup truck is not james brown right. you don't get one without the other no, no. Uh, you know, you, you, you have a lot of these folks are, uh, are damaged uh, people that then are uh, elevated into a godlike status, uh, given all the money and power uh, that comes along with that, and uh, are usually ill-equipped to, uh, to, to, to deal with those circumstances, right? Yes. So with the ones who do... It blows my mind. That's <laughs> the back, one that can can manage it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back to Madonna. Yeah, you know, it's like, how how is that possible? And then you look, like if you actually look 
we take it for I took it for granted. If you look at like what she released, when she released it, how she progressed, how she kept progressing, progressing, how she kept on the charts, it's just it's just mind blowing. It's like no people aren't no one's really done that before. Elton John maybe, but other than that, I don't know of anyone. And how do you keep your sanity? How do you not go crazy? And I think the answer is so obvious. It's boring. It's you talk about Madonna, you talk about Elton John. It's like what's missing comparatively to everybody else. It's drugs and yeah. alcohol. Yeah. It's like it's like they didn't abuse it ever. You know? It's why Mick Jagger was able to keep the stones hung together because As opposed yeah, to Keith, I, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh and I, I agree. Uh, you know, uh, uh without um uh, you know, without without one side uh, like Mick uh, keeping it together, there would be no uh, no Rolling Stones. And, uh, you know, they would all have uh, ended a long, long time ago. So um, uh, but the, the fact is, is that more often than not, um, things go awry and create plenty of stories for uh for us to discuss uh uh like you've done with uh with this graceland so so let's talk elvis um first tell me about the logo to the show which has been translated to the book and in other disgraceland swag but it all starts with zombie elvis who who did that design uh my friend chris capitosto caps he has a company called style proof and we've worked together in the past and i called him up. I said, Hey man, I'm looking for like a dead Elvis type of thing. <laughs> what do you got? And that was like the first pass. I mean, he crushed it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That was great. I, I, I just have to get myself a t-shirt of that thing. Uh, uh, okay. In, in the book, you know, you start off with the famous Elvis shooting up the television image of Robert Goulet and, and that seamlessly moves to Jerry Lee Lewis's attempted break in to shoot Elvis, which mm -hmm. I, I don't believe happened at the same time. Uh, I think those were at different uh, uh, points uh, in history. Yep. Am, am I right? Am I, okay. But, uh, and then, and then, yeah, to your point, you, you then uh, kind of move seamlessly from, from each story to, to the next. Uh, and, and all of these are true. Uh, uh, as are the other stories, uh, in the book and the podcast, right? Yes. I mean, there's definitely dramatization that goes on. I'm very clear about that in the podcast mm -hmm. and also in the book. I use the term when I'm describing it on the flap is transgressive fiction. And there's some moving around of timelines to actually get this to hang together and make it read dramatically. But the actual stories that I'm telling um, no matter any dramatization, any dialogue that's inserted, I mean, none of it is put in there if it does the story a disservice. Everything is done in the spirit of the actual story itself. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah, the same yeah. exact tactic that a television writer would take for a television show like something like Narcos about Pablo Escobar. Like we know the story of Pablo Escobar, and that's what yeah, we're getting. We don't know the all the things that happened in the room, uh, and exactly. we're going to dramatize that, right? But you can deduce based on the facts what was actually said and how it was, you know, and and where you want to take that dramatically and creatively. That's up to your own sort of creative license and how far you want to take your audience. Well. I, I know a little bit now, uh, given uh, the situation with your with your brother, but I, I have to ask, uh, the the book ends with a, a very sweet fantasy that is not true uh, right. about Elvis. 
uh, that right. you you call well, skinny Elvis. Well, we don't know that it's not. True. <laughs> you can't prove that it's not. True. No, no, I can't. Now, can I? <laughs> you can't. Uh, we know. I mean, factually, it is very true. Elvis but I know died. the first question I'll ask <laughs> when I get to St. Peter's. But <laughs> Elvis died on the toilet. That is a fact. That is a that fact. Is that is a fact. fact. Right. Yeah. He was. It was black. Drugs. Yes. <laughs> he was on drugs that made him hallucinate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's true. I'm very. Uh, I go into great detail about those specific drugs and the effects they have on him. Yes. So it is possible. My my theory. I don't want to give the book away, but what happens in the end with Elvis, Fat Elvis, and Skinny Elvis is very. It's it's not impossible. I'll say that. No, it's not impossible. Uh, it's something that I wish. I think we all wish would have happened uh, before that fateful day on August 16th, uh, 1977. Uh, but, um, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, you know, he, he, he put himself in, in a box and, and, and that box happens to be uh, named Colonel uh, Tom Parker, wouldn't you say? Yes, exactly. And that was, um, you know, when I was watching the documentary on Elvis on HBO, it was either um, Searcher, yeah, the Searcher, yeah, yeah, which is really yeah. fantastic. I think it was it was either Tom Petty or um, uh, Warren Zanes. I think it was Petty who said, um, "You know, we didn't, you didn't know why Elvis did all this stuff that he was doing, like why he couldn't break away, essentially why he couldn't break away from Parker." Mm-hmm. And then I found this Phil Spector quote that was like. Uh, to Rolling Stone in the 70s and he was talking to Jan Wenner about how you'd be with Elvis and he'd say one thing to you and then he'd go into a room with Parker, Colonel Parker, and he'd come out and it would be the exact opposite. And he never – it was like – and what they're not saying is that there was something there that Parker had on him. That's that's what you – that's what I was led to believe anyways. And I obviously took that colonel and – got a book out of it (laughs) right 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 all right so what is next for you and the disgraceland franchise a netflix show um there's there's been a lot of talk with different people lots of different people about a scripted series with disgraceland um i'm still waiting to hear from somebody um how we do this in a way that is unique and interesting and it's going to actually be an extension of the podcast and not just a thing to do for the sake of doing it. Uh-huh. So I don't know, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. Good. You're in, you're in tight control of your, uh, your property. Yeah. Better than yeah. the music business, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. It's an actual business. Yeah. Yeah. It's an actual business. Yeah. Oh, so awesome. Having you join us on deeper digs in rock today, Jake Brennan. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was great talking to you. It was an awesome conversation.
so nice of Jake to join us today. If you haven't listened to the Disgraceland podcast, even though it's not a Pantheon production, we highly recommend it. And don't forget about the book based on the podcast, Disgraceland, Musicians Getting Away with Murder and Behaving Very Badly, now available wherever you get your good reads. I'm truly happy for Jake and his success. It tells us that podcasts on and about the rock and roll era are a happening thing. Of course, Jake, as I said, hit the zeitgeist by combining stories of rockers with crime drama. It just sounds like a hit on paper, doesn't it? So I'm not surprised at its success. Like our Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast, Jake is telling the stories of the people who made the music. And while he focuses on the bad behavior and hellacious troubles these guys, yes, almost always guys, put themselves in, and we try to do something a bit more expansive, uh, though we do touch on some of the darker elements ourselves, It's all the same. We as fans are intensely interested in these people, good or bad, and how they lived this heady experience during the heights of rock and roll fame. Hey, they don't call it being a rock star for nothing. Uh, It was the ultimate human existence of freedom, and sometimes that leads to the ultimate excesses. Well, oftentimes it leads to, oh, well, who, who am I kidding? It almost always leads to some kind of, of excess, right? You go, you win the lottery, and you try to navigate all that comes with it. Most people aren't built to survive that existence, and especially the young. Hell, I- I'm surprised so many of these guys made it to their 70s, and I am not surprised by all the dead bodies along the way uh, to get to that age. You know, They say being a professional musician is one of the most dangerous careers in the world. Um, But who doesn't like danger? Yeah, that's what I thought. We all would change places in a heartbeat. Okay, that's it for this week. On our next episode, I get the pleasure of speaking with Prince protege Liv Warfield. And I cannot wait for you all to hear about this super lady with the big voice. Yes, we talk about working with His Majesty, the Purple One, and what it's like to have a certifiable genius take such interest in guiding your career uh, into becoming your own star. We go through her amazing story of not ever singing publicly until her 20s, Yeah, Uh, learning to fly on her own after Prince's untimely passing, her successes and her just-released singles, and upcoming album. Oh, and if you don't know who I'm talking about, I suggest you go YouTube Live Warfield on Jimmy Fallon before next week's episode drops. Ciao, Bellas. Keep up the rockin'. I'm on a keep a shaking, I'm on a keep a moving, baby. Don't you tell me my style, I'm a real watch out. I'm on, baby, shake all night long. I shake till I beat the come off of the bone, but I'm a wild one. Ooh, yeah, I'm a wild one. I'm on a keep a shaking, gonna keep a moving, baby. Don't you tell me my style, I'm a real watch out. Deeper digs in rocks. 
Produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.